This winter, L.L. Bean wants to help you get outfitted for all that's out there with tips and advice for heading outdoors and exploring all the possibilities of the season. Finding time outside can feel tough in winter, but it's just steps away if you turn your backyard into a winter oasis. Add a fire pit to keep you warm, some winter games to keep you active, and some all-weather furniture and outdoor blankets for chilling out comfortably. Just because it's cold out, that doesn't mean you have to be cold. For more fun ideas, easy how-tos, and inspiring stories, visit llbean.com slash guide. Sweeping wildflower fields, brilliant fall foliage, cascading waterfalls, black bears and songbirds, mountain hollows, a meandering scenic drive stretching over 100 miles across the crest of the Blue Ridge Mountains. Shenandoah National Park in central Virginia has attracted visitors since the 1930s when the park first opened to the public. While the creation of the park was the successful result of the persistent collaboration between business owners, local park advocates, the state of Virginia, the federal government, and the Young National Park Service, it also resulted in the forced displacement of thousands of individuals residing within the new park bounds. In the heat of the American eugenics movement, the state not only removed people from their homes along the Blue Ridge, but often institutionalized these displaced residents in an attempt to cure American society of the ill of rural poverty. I'm Jason Epperson, and today on America's National Parks, the story of Shenandoah. People have been present in the Shenandoah Valley for 15,000 years. Until about 3,000 years ago, indigenous communities here were nomadic, following food with the change in seasons. Stationary indigenous communities of Massawomek, Monahoic, Monacan, and Shawandes Tula people lived prosperously by hunting, fishing, farming, and trading throughout the fertile Shenandoah Valley. By the time European settlers first arrived in Virginia in the 1600s, the valley was largely deserted, used only for hunting and trapping by the Haudenosaunee tribes. There are three major hypotheses about where the stationary communities in this region went. The Little Ice Age, which began in the 14th century, may have disrupted farming to the degree that it was no longer productive enough to justify stationary settlements. The trade of material goods between indigenous communities may have spread disease. Conflict between tribes may have pushed communities to leave the region or destroyed them altogether. Perhaps most likely is some combination of all three. The 1722 Treaty of Albany between five leaders of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy and the English colonies of New York, Pennsylvania, and Virginia established the Blue Ridge Mountains as a boundary between the Haudenosaunee and English territory. When white settlers pushed across the ridge and into the valley, tensions escalated. With the 1744 Treaty of Lancaster, the Haudenosaunee Confederacy sold their claim to the Commonwealth of Virginia. And over the following decade, white settlers eagerly purchased land titles and moved to the foothills of the Blue Ridge Mountains. They farmed, raised livestock, mined copper, processed lumber and bark for leather tanning. They developed water mills, taking advantage of the lush and fertile region for economic gain. George Freeman Pollock, born in 1869, saw the scenic Blue Ridge as a resource in itself. 
he inherited property from his father, a New England importer and copper miner who owned land on Stony Man Mountain. In 1895, Pollock used his inheritance to open Skyland Resort, a natural idol, a mere 90 miles from Washington, D.C. An outdoorsman and hobby naturalist, Pollock was invested in the aesthetics of his mountain resort. Skyland property deeds stipulated that only rustic dwellings built either of logs or of frame covered with bark could be built. Skyland was populated by many Washington, D.C. socialites. Pollock's wife, Addie Nairn Hunter, came from a high society Washington, D.C. family. Those who rented and purchased property at Skyland included politicians, lawyers, judges, and other elite D.C. professionals with a penchant for conservation and the outdoors. At the turn of the 20th century, all national parks but Acadia and Maine were located in the western continental United States. In 1923, the first director of the National Park Service, Stephen Mather, offered a suggestion to Secretary of the Interior, Hubert Work, establish a small five-person committee on the creation of a national park in the Southern Appalachians. This exploratory committee caught the attention of Harold Allen, a special prosecutor for the Justice Department and a Skyland regular. Allen mailed a newspaper clipping announcing the committee's genesis to Pollock annotating it with one simple question. Why not Skyland? Allen and Pollock, as well as friend and publisher George H. Judd, launched a collaborative campaign to persuade the federal committee to pick the Skyland area for the next national park. In addition to the conservation of Shenandoah Valley and Blue Ridge, this party saw the economic value a park could bring to Skyland. Local businessmen and influential vacationers established the Northern Virginia National Park Association to lobby for the Shenandoah Valley and Blue Ridge. State Senator Harry Flood Byrd, who at the time was launching a campaign for governor of Virginia, agreed to chair the committee. His connections across the state and his eventual leadership would prove to be valuable assets to the association. Significantly, the association also suggested laying a skyline drive along the mountaintop. This is the first recorded mention of Skyline Drive, the axis of Shenandoah National Park, which stretches 105 miles across the Blue Ridge. The association spent six weeks lobbying Congress in early 1925 after reviewing a few different sites in Kentucky, North Carolina, Tennessee, and Virginia. The Federal Exploratory Committee made the formal recommendation to Congress to establish Shenandoah and Great Smoky Mountain National Parks in Virginia and Tennessee. In 1926, President Calvin Coolidge signed a bill into law allowing the transfer of land titles to the United States to establish Shenandoah National Park. However, no federal funds were provided to purchase park lands. The Northern Virginia National Park Association thus shifted its focus from lobbying in Washington to fundraising back home in Virginia. Most parks previously established by the National Park Service were relatively untouched terrain or were inhabited by indigenous communities, which, according to the federal government, had no legal claim to their lands. However, rural European-descended communities dotted the mountainsides along the Blue Ridge. Many families had lived there for generations and possessed title to the land. 
This required the survey of thousands of parcels of privately owned land. Neither Virginia nor the National Park Service had ever undertaken a challenge of this scale. Using eminent domain, the Commonwealth of Virginia either purchased or condemned by force over 3,000 individual tracts of land. These tracts along the Blue Ridge were originally assessed based on their tax value, coming to a total of $2 million for nearly 400,000 acres. But upon reassessment based on market value, the land came to the price of $6 million, three times what the Northern Virginia National Park Association had intended to raise. Things were not looking good. We'll be back in a moment, but first, a quick break for a message from our favorite place to search for the best campground for your national park adventures, Campendium. Campendium lists virtually every campground in North America and every type of campsite you can imagine. From remote backcountry tent sites to RV parks with water slides and pickleball courts, you can search by price, including free or by cell service, elevation, whether pets are allowed. Dozens of different search filters will bring you detailed user reviews so you can find the best campsite for your trip. Campendium is free at campendium.com or on the app, and you can upgrade to a RoadPass Pro membership to unlock an ad-free experience with more detailed cell service reports, public land map overlays, trail maps, and more. A RoadPass Pro membership also includes other premium apps like Togo RV and Road Trippers. Visit Campendium.com or download the app today and save $10 off a RoadPass Pro membership with code RVMILES10X. February 1928 brought with it two legislative victories for the association. First, Congress passed a bill to reduce the minimum acreage of the park to 321 acres. Second, the Virginia Assembly and Governor Harry Byrd agreed to purchase the land for $1 million. Thanks to a surplus during the first two years of the governor's term, the Assembly could dedicate this million to the park project without levying a tax. In 1928, following Herbert Hoover's successful bid for President of the United States, William Carson, chairman of the Virginia Commission on Conservation and Development, the agency responsible for the assessment and acquisition of land for the park, invited Hoover to build a fishing camp on the eastern slope of the Blue Ridge. Carson was dedicated to the cause of Shenandoah and saw this as an opportunity to draw publicity to the project. Christened Rapidan Camp after the nearby Rapidan River, the presidential retreat earned the Blue Ridge national publicity as Carson had hoped. Carson also initiated the Skyline Drive project by convincing the Hoover administration to use federal lands and local labor to lay a road from Rapidan Camp Northwest along the Blue Ridge to Skyland. By the early 1930s, a combination of fundraising, legislative, and bureaucratic difficulties led to long delays in the park's opening, and public impatience was mounting. Early in 1932, the park's minimum acreage was again reduced, a result of a shortage of anticipated funds from private donors. To relieve public pressure, Carson convinced the National Park Service to temporarily open a 12-mile stretch of Skyline Drive in the fall of 1932. These were the worst days of the Great Depression for many Americans. But even so, the scenic drive drew more than 30,000 visitors over a mere six weeks, and this is the early days of automobiles. Virginia, 
Inspiring his forest army by a personal visit, President Roosevelt makes his first tour of the Civilian Conservation Corps camps in the Shenandoah Valley. After inspecting Skyland, the Commander-in-Chief takes a seat at the head of the table to eat with the boys. And he enjoys every bite of the plain, wholesome food furnished at the camp. It's very good to be here at these Virginia CCC camps. I wish I could see them all over the country. I hope that all over the country they're in as fine condition as the camps that I've seen today. I wish that I could take a couple of months off from the White House and come down here and live with them because I know I'd get full of health the way they have. The only difference is that they've put on an average of about 12 pounds apiece since they got here, and I'm trying to take off 12 pounds. <laughs> President Franklin Roosevelt agreed to advance Skyline Drive by making the project an early recipient of New Deal funds. At least six camps of the Civilian Conservation Corps housed and fed laborers while they worked on the project. In August 1933, Roosevelt paid a visit to the camps and the park in person. He affirmed his support of the Skyline Drive project, a win for the depressed local economy, and agreed to a future extension of Skyline Drive from Shenandoah to Great Smoky Mountains National Park, the genesis of the National Park Service's Blue Ridge Parkway. Roosevelt formally dedicated the 176,000 acres of Shenandoah on July 3, 1936. Public response was near euphoric. Three years later, Shenandoah was receiving the most visitors of any national park. The establishment of Shenandoah is a story of the preservation of natural resources for future generations, received with wide eyes and open arms by the American public of the 1930s. Shenandoah continues to provide access to the sublime Blue Ridge and Shenandoah Valley to over one million visitors each year. The establishment of the park also displaced mountain communities living within its bounds. Using eminent domain, the Commonwealth of Virginia and the federal government seized property from thousands. Although they were compensated, landowners were given no choice. Whether or not they owned the land, residents were forced to vacate their homes. This has been part one of our exploration of the history of Shenandoah National Park, written by Sophie Pooks. Kelsey Skonberg is our script editor. Peter Shen is the author of our theme music and the editor of this episode. And I'm your host, Jason Epperson. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving us a rating and a review. If you're new here, make sure to subscribe to the podcast to get new episodes delivered to your feed. If you're looking for photos and tips about visiting national parks, check out our America's National Parks Facebook group. And if you're interested in RV travel, we hope you'll also check out our RV Miles podcast and YouTube channel. Today's show was sponsored by L.L. Bean. Follow the hashtag Be an Outsider and visit LLBean.com to find great gear for exploring the national parks. And by Campendium. Find listings and reviews for thousands of campsites for your next national park adventure at Campendium.com.